Thanks for downloading today's podcast of Clearly Seen, taught by Mike Kokoris. I think you're going to enjoy what Mike has for you today. And if you're ever in the San Fernando Valley area of Los Angeles, we invite you to Lindley Church. Mike would love to meet you personally and answer any questions you have. Feel free to email your comments and questions to michael at kokoris.com. Now, let's hear from Mike. The most controversial aspect of the doctrine of the Holy Spirit is the baptism of the Holy Spirit. The reason for that is the rise of something called Pentecostalism. Uh, That is actually a relatively new movement. It started at the beginning of the 20th century, where a man named Parham decided that the baptism of the Holy Spirit was evidenced by speaking in tongues. And from that, uh, the movement came from Kansas through Houston to Los Angeles and is better known as the Azusa Street Revival. The idea behind Pentecostalism is this, that there is a second experience every believer should have after conversion. That second experience is called the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And the way you know you have it is that you begin to speak in tongues. Now, I say that's controversial for the simple reason that not all agree with that. Many would say that you receive the Holy Spirit, including the baptism of the Holy Spirit, the moment that you trust Christ. In other words, at conversion. So that's the controversy. In a nutshell, does the baptism of the Holy Spirit take place at conversion or after conversion? The speaking in tongues part is not as critical as when does the baptism take place? Uh, The speaking in tongues is a footnote, actually, as compared to this issue. The issue is, is it at conversion or after conversion? So, what I'd like to do is basically answer two questions about the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Number one, when does it take place? And secondly, what's the significance of it anyway? In the process, I might touch on the tongues thing, but that's not the critical issue in understanding the baptism of the Holy Spirit. So, what does the New Testament say about the baptism of the Holy Spirit? Will you turn with me to Acts chapter 1? And while you're turning to Acts chapter 1, let me remind you that at the beginning of the ministry of Christ, uh, John the Baptist said that he baptized with water But the one he was baptizing, namely Jesus, would later baptize with the Holy Spirit. So obviously, uh, from the standpoint of John the Baptist, the baptism of the Holy Spirit had not yet occurred. This was not something that took place in the Old Testament. (laughs) Furthermore, he said Jesus would do it in the future. Now... By the time we get to Acts chapter 1, Jesus has been crucified. Jesus has been bodily raised from the dead. Uh, 
now he meets with the disciples before the ascension. There are ten such appearances. This is the last one before his ascension. So look at Acts chapter 1, verse 4. Being assembled together with them, he commanded them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you have heard from me. For John truly baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Two observations. Number one, he's talking about the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Clear? Clear. Number two, it hasn't happened yet. It's going to happen in the future. So it's still future by the time we get to Acts chapter 1. And it's not many days from now. So it's coming, and it's coming pretty quick. So don't go anywhere. Stay in Jerusalem because it's going to happen in Jerusalem. Now, if you start reading the book of Acts, the next thing that happens is you bump into chapter 2, and we are told this in verse 1. When the day of Pentecost had fully come, they were all with one accord in one place. And suddenly there came a sound from heaven as a rushing mighty wind, and it filled the whole house where they were sitting. Then there appeared to them divided tongues as fire, and one sat on each of them. And they were all... What? Wait, 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 wait. What are we anticipating? What did Jesus say was coming? The baptism of the Holy Spirit. Hmm. But Luke records that they were filled with the Holy Spirit. And they began to speak as tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. All right. Well, in the Old Testament, people were filled with the Holy Spirit. So, is this the baptism? Uh, if this is all we have, we couldn't say for sure whether or not this is the baptism of the Holy Spirit. So, you're going to have to keep reading. And the next significant mention, anywhere near connected to this subject in the book of Acts, is in Acts chapter 8. Now, I'm not going to take the time to go through each of these passages because it would take too long, and I have other fish to fry. But let me just remind you that in Acts chapter 8, Philip went to Samaria, preached the gospel, and then Peter and John came along, laid hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. All right. That's Acts 8. Keep reading. The next time you meet anything that's related to this, even remotely, is Acts chapter 10. Now, that one you might turn to. Now, let's look at Acts chapter 10 for a second. Um, in Acts chapter 10, verse 43, Peter is preaching in Cornelius' household, and he says to him, all the prophets witnessed that through his name, 
Whoever believes in him will receive the remission of sins. While Peter was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit fell upon all who heard the word. And those of the circumcision who believed were astonished, as many who came with Peter, because the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out on the Gentiles also. For they heard them speak with tongues and magnified God. Now, this gets real interesting. In Acts chapter 1, he prophesies it's going to happen in the future. But what happens in the future isn't called the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Is it called the baptism of the Holy Spirit in Acts 2? Is it called the baptism of the Holy Spirit in Acts 8? And is it called the baptism of the Holy Spirit in Acts 10? In Acts 2, it comes on the Jews. In Acts 8, it's on the Samaritans, half Jew, half Gentile. And in Acts 10, it's happening to the Gentiles. And by the way, Peter is now in trouble. I mean, he's got to go back and explain how he, a Jew, let the Gentiles in. So, in Acts chapter 11, he does just that. So, look at Acts chapter 11, and uh, verse, uh, oh, let's pick it up about verse 12. Then the Spirit told me to go with them, doubting nothing. Moreover, these six brethren accompanied me, and we entered the man's house. And he told us how he had seen an angel standing in the house who said to him, Send men to Joppa and call for Simon, whose surname is Peter who will tell you words by which you and all your household will be saved. And as I spoke, the Holy Spirit fell on all of them as upon us at the beginning. Ooh! Now, but here's what's going on. Peter says, look, folks, I don't have anything to do with this. I mean, it wasn't my fault. I mean, I didn't plan this. I, I just, I was commanded to go preach the gospel. I did it. And, and while I was preaching, the Holy Spirit fell on them. It was the Lord. It wasn't me, honest. I didn't let the Gentiles in. The Lord did. Now, that's what's going on in the passage. But what intrigues me is he said what happened to them was the same thing that happened to us at the beginning. The beginning of what? What are you talking about? Read the next verse. Verse 16. Then I remembered the word of the Lord, how he said, John indeed baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Ah. Now, here's what you got to know. Acts 1.5, the baptism is future, right? Got that? He said it was future, not many days from now. Acts chapter 11 says it happened on the Gentiles like it happened to us at the beginning. So the beginning is somewhere between Acts 1-5 and Acts 10. Got it? There's only one option. Because he fell on the Samaritans in Acts 8 and the Gentiles in Acts 10, the only time the Holy Spirit fell on Peter and the apostles and the believers was Acts chapter 2. So, the beginning of the baptism of the Holy Spirit. 
was in Acts chapter 2. Got it? Did you follow me? Was that too complicated? You got that? That was pretty simple, right? Oh, it gets to be fun. Here's the issue. When does it happen? You just told us it happened in Acts chapter 2. I know. But I'm talking about in the life of believers now. And here's the problem. Let's go back and review. In Acts chapter 2, when it, the Holy Spirit, uh, he filled them, but he also baptized them. Those are actually two different things. Uh, with the Holy Spirit. Was that at their conversion or after their conversion? It was after. They were all saved. Ooh. In Acts chapter 8, when the Holy Spirit fell on the Samaritans, was that at their conversion or after their conversion? I told you a minute ago, but you forgot already, right? It was after. In Acts chapter 10, was it at their conversion or after? At. Confused yet? Well, let me see if I can help. There's one other incident of the baptism of the Holy Spirit recorded in the book of Acts, and it's Acts chapter 19. Paul meets some disciples of John the Baptist and said, have you received the baptism of the Holy Spirit? They said no. He lays hands on them, and they receive the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And that's after they were converted. Do you see the problem? In Acts 2, it's after. In Acts 8, it's after. In Acts 10, it's at. In Acts 19, it's after. So, voila! Do you receive the baptism of the Holy Spirit at conversion or after conversion? Ooh, do you see the controversy? Do you see the debate? And if you ever meet someone who is uh, of the persuasion of Pentecostalism, they will take you through the passages I just took you through, and they will say, see, in the book of Acts, you, it happened after. So you need a second experience after conversion whereby you receive the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Right? I mean, I got three passages that teach that. You're going to deny the Bible? <laughs> and you say, well, well, which is it? Because one of those passages says at. Acts 10. Clearly, I had you read it, right? So which is it? And why, and, and why are there two different cases in the book of Acts? No matter which answer you give, you've got to explain the... The, the, the book of Acts, they're not always the same way. Oh, maybe that's the answer. Maybe it's not always the same way. What's going on? All right, let me give you my answer. And the answer of many Christians, uh, all Christians who are not uh, of the Pentecostal persuasion. The book of Acts is a transition. Uh, I mentioned a minute ago, Acts 2, the Holy Spirit came upon the Jews. Acts 8, the Holy Spirit came upon the Samaritans. Now, it's very important. Do you understand the Jews and the Samaritans hated each other? The Samaritans were half-breeds. 
when the Assyrians had conquered the northern kingdom, I mean the southern kingdom, they exported Jews to what is now Iraq, and they imported Gentiles and they intermarried. So the Samaritans were half-breeds, and the pure breeds hated the half-breeds. So Peter and John have to go up there and lay hands on them because had they not, they would have forever been two churches that hated each other. So the way it was done, it connected the two Jews and Samaritans. In the case of the Gentiles, they got in because God directed uh, the Holy Spirit to fall in the middle of Peter's sermon. The minute he just said, if you believe, you have the forgiveness of sins. Obviously, they believed, and bam, that minute, wham, they got the Holy Spirit. So it was at conversion. Now, that really is kind of nice. Jews, Samaritans, Gentiles. Well, that's a nice little transition, isn't it? So we have to get everybody in. But I said there was one other, and that's the Apostle Paul. How do you explain him? Now, this is going to get a little complicated, but bear with me. I'll smooth all this out in a minute. You have to understand what's going on in the book of Acts, and most people don't. It's called the Acts of the... Apostles. How many apostles are there? Twelve? Judas hung himself, so we got eleven. So how many apostles are there in the book of Acts? If the book of Acts is about the acts of the apostles, how many apostles would you expect to appear in the pages of the book of Acts? Would you settle for ten? How about eight? Seven? Five? Well, try this on for size. It isn't even five. You've got Matthias, who replaces Judah. You've got Peter, who dominates chapters 1 to 12. And John tags along. And of the original 12, that's it. That's it. What happened to the others? Book of Acts doesn't tell us. Outside of the Bible, we know they traveled all over the world preaching the gospel. But the book of Acts doesn't tell us. As a matter of fact, starting in Acts 13 and all the way through 28, it's all about Paul. And he is called an apostle, but not one of the original 12. He said he was born out of due time. Now, the book of Acts is really about Peter and Paul. That's it. Chapters 1 to 12, it's basically about Peter. And 13 to 28, it's basically about Paul. What's going on in this book? Well, at the end of the book, Paul is in prison in Rome, being charged as an insurrectionist, wanting the, the Jews back in Jerusalem had him arrested. And Luke is writing to Theophilus to defend Paul. And his defense is, Paul is not a political figure. He's not uh, a terrorist. He's not an insurrectionist. He's uh, doing something religious. He's out there preaching the gospel. And it is important that you understand, Peter is connected to Paul. Uh, Peter was uh, one of the original disciples. And here's the key to the book of Acts. Everything Peter does, Paul does. So the book of Acts is really a defense 
of the Apostle Paul. Now it's also talking about the spread of the gospel from Jerusalem to Rome. There's some other things going on. But the primary purpose, based on the content, is a defense of the Apostle Paul. So Peter raises somebody from the dead. Paul raises somebody from the dead. Peter's involved with people speaking in tongues. Paul is involved with people speaking in tongues. That's how we get Paul in on this subject. But my point is, if you fell asleep, wake up. My point is, real simple, the baptism of the Holy Spirit began when? Acts. I put them to sleep. Acts 2. All right. Does it happen before or after conversion? I haven't answered that yet. In the book of Acts, it was both. But after the transition period, it becomes evident that all are baptized with the Holy Spirit at conversion. So how do you know that? Well, in the first place, the book of Acts is clearly a transition from the law to grace. This is a transition period, as is very clear by Jews, Samaritans, Gentile, Paul. By the way, the book of Acts spans 30 years. Starts with the crucifixion, or right after the crucifixion, and goes to about 60, 30 years. In 30 years, there are four cases. So this is not the norm. The norm, when you get into the epistles, is if you don't have the Holy Spirit, you're none of his. Whoa, that's Acts 8, 9, by the way. That's pretty strong. If you don't have the Holy Spirit, you're not a Christian, according to Paul in Acts 9. Now, that's after the transition period, and it's after uh, these various groups have been baptized with the Holy Spirit. Furthermore, 1 Corinthians 12, 13 says, For by one Spirit are we all baptized into one body. Did you catch it? How many? All. All. Now, what's particularly fascinating about that verse is it's in 1 Corinthians. Did you ever read 1 Corinthians? It was the, the, a Baptist church. So how do you know? Well, I read what was going on in it. They were divided. That's the first four chapters, and that's only the beginning. You named the sin, and it was in that church. I mean, it was really, really bad, down to the point that they were getting drunk at the Lord's table. That's, Acts, that's 1 Corinthians chapter 11. And of those people, he said, you were all baptized into the body of Christ, talking about the baptism of the Holy Spirit. So, my conclusion is this. The baptism of the Holy Spirit began... In Acts chapter 2, there was a transition, and after that transition, after we got all the various groups in, then all who trust Christ are baptized with the Holy Spirit at the moment of conversion. So those who teach that you should seek a second experience, in my opinion, are simply not biblical. Now, Many of these people, most of them, I'm sure, are very sincere people. I've, I've preached in churches that were Pentecostal. They are, they are Christians. They're godly people. They're just wrong. 
on the subject. So, you know, I have to say they're wrong. Didn't say they weren't converted. Didn't say they didn't love the Lord. I just said they weren't right on the subject. I said, well, how can you be so dogmatic? Uh, well, for one thing, they teach that you ought to seek the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Have you ever been told you should seek the baptism of the Holy Spirit? Raise your hand. You ever, you ever been told that? Yeah. Matter of fact, I, I, I hadn't been saved very long when I met somebody who said, oh, have you received the Holy Spirit? I didn't know what they were talking about. I said, well, you've got to seek it. I said, well, how do I know I got it? Well, you'll speak in tongues. So I've been dealing with this for a few years. Uh, well, let me just tell you, nobody in the New Testament was ever told to seek the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Nobody, ever. That's never commanded. Ever. Never. Did I make that clear? As a matter of fact, there is somebody who did. Know the story? It's in Acts chapter 8. It's Simon. And you know what? One of the strongest rebukes in all of the New Testament is against him for trying to seek the very thing we're talking about. He wanted to pay money so he would have the power to, seek, uh, to bestow the Holy Spirit. And Peter rebukes him in the strongest possible terms. Furthermore, uh, according to Pentecostalism, Every Christian ought to seek the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Therefore, every Christian ought to speak in tongues, right? Well, the Bible is very clear that's not the case. Turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 12. 1 Corinthians chapter 12. And look at verse 28. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 28. And God has appointed these in the church, first apostles, second prophets, third teachers, and after that miracles, then gifts of healing, helps, administrations, varieties of tongues. Now, verse 29, are all Christians apostles? Yes or no? No. Well, are all Christians prophets? No. Are all Christians teachers? No. Are all workers of miracles? No. no. Actually, in context, he's really saying, do all have the gift of apostles? It's a gift in Ephesians 4. Do all have the gift of prophet? Do all have the gift of teaching? And all have the gift of miracles? No. Do all have the gift of healing? No. Do all speak with tongues? No. Now, that's obvious by just reading the text, but in the Greek text, it demands a negative answer. So, earnestly desire the best gifts, verse 31, and I'll show you a more excellent way, the way of love. So all I'm saying is, with all due respect to those who differ with me, I think the scripture teaches that you should not seek the baptism of the Holy Spirit, and the evidence of it is not speaking in tongues. Not all are to speak with tongues. That's a whole other subject. And there's a lot to say about that. But I don't have time today because I want to let you out before dinner. <laughs> you were supposed to laugh. Okay?
I said I was going to answer two questions today. I've only answered one so far. The first question is, when does the baptism of the Holy Spirit take place? And the answer is, at conversion. If you have trusted Jesus Christ for the gift of eternal life, you have been baptized with the Holy Spirit. You might not know that. You might not knew that, know that when it happened. You might not have felt anything. I doubt that you did. It's not a feeling. But you have been baptized with the Holy Spirit. So the question is, what does that mean? So I said, the second question we need to address is, what is the significance of the baptism of the Holy Spirit? Now, before I answer that, I want to just review for a second. This is a short series on the doctrine of the baptism, I mean, of the Holy Spirit. And so far, I've said that the Holy Spirit convicts the world of sin, righteousness, and of judgment. That the Holy Spirit then regenerates us, means gives us new life. The Holy Spirit then indwells us, and the Holy Spirit seals us until the day the Lord comes back to redeem the body. Now add to that list, and the Holy Spirit baptizes you. Now that I haven't explained yet, I'm about to, but I just want to remind you the whole, this is the work of the Holy Spirit. And in this series so far, I've explained all these various works of the Holy Spirit in the life of a believer. He's the one that convinces us that we were sinners who needed a Savior. He is the one that when we trusted Christ, gave us a new kind of life, divine life. We are partakers of the divine nature. He takes up residence within us and seals us until the Lord comes back, and on top of all of that, baptizes us. Now, what is the baptism of the Holy Spirit? To answer that, you need to turn to Romans chapter 6. We're playing Bible hopscotch today. We are hopscotching around, but this is important. All right, chapter 6, verse 2. I'll start at verse 1. Shall we, what shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Certainly not. How shall we who died to sin live any longer in it? Or do you not know as many of us who were baptized, here we go, into Christ Jesus? Stop. The baptism of the Holy Spirit is being baptized into Christ. Did you see that? Don't go any further than that verse. And it explains what the baptism of the Holy Spirit does. It baptizes you into Christ. Now, look at verse 5. Where we have been united together, stop. That's the baptism of the Holy Spirit. <clears throat> it unites us to Jesus Christ. Period. There's more. But the basic idea is I have been united to Christ. Uh, the illustration I've often used to this is I got married. So I'm united to Patricia. 
I guess we got baptized. <laughs> right? That's marriage. United. We talk about the two become one. Got it? All right. There's more. Go back and look at verse 3. Or do you not know that as many of us who were baptized into Christ were baptized into his death? Ah. So, we were baptized into Christ and put into him, and that means that we were baptized into his death, that somehow we died when that happened. Hmm. What does that mean? Well, the passage goes on to explain that the old man died. When I first became a Christian, I was told the old man was the old nature. And they were trying to tell me that my old sinful nature died. And I'm sitting there in the pew thinking, man, I don't know about your old nature. Mine didn't die. That didn't happen. It took me years to figure out that old man is not my old sinful nature. It's not part of me. It's the whole me. It's my old life. I've been united to Christ, and that makes me a new person. That old life I had no longer exists. My illustration is real simple. I married Patricia, and the day I married Patricia, my single life died. That's all this passage is saying. My single life died. There's more. Look at the passage again. This time, look at verse 4. Therefore, we were buried with him through baptism into death, that just as Jesus was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we should walk in newness of life. Goes on to say uh, in verse 5, For we have been united to him in the likeness of his death. Certainly we shall be in the likeness of his resurrection. So I have been united to Christ. I've been united to Christ, and that means something died. But I've been united to his resurrection, so I'm alive. Spiritually. Now, what does that mean? Well, drop down and look at verse 11. Likewise, you also reckon yourselves to be dead indeed to sin, but alive, resurrection, alive to God. Ah, this is, by the way, this is a tough passage, and there's a lot in here, but in simple terms, it's saying this. The minute I trusted Christ, I was baptized into Christ. I was baptized into his death. I was baptized into his resurrection. Translated, it means that old life I used to live died. I'm no longer that person. I'm a new creature in Christ. And I am resurrected. I'm alive to God. And my illustration is very simple. And that is, I married Patricia. I'm united to her. My old life, my single life died. I'm now alive to her. That's all in the world this passage is teaching. And you should live your life, as verse 11 says, by reckoning that that's true. Reckon on that. 
You know what that means? You have a book, you have a checking account? You reckon on your checking account, your checkbook all the time. The checkbook says you have a balance of $100. You reckon I can't spend more than that. That's reckoning. That's all this is talking about, an accounting term. That's all it's talking about. So, by the way, does that mean you might bounce a check? Could you not reckon? Some come to this passage and teach like, since that happened, you could never go back to the single life. And my response to that is, you need to read the Bible with both eyes open. Not some preconceived idea. Because you could clearly not do what this passage says by simply not reckoning. Matter of fact, he goes on to say, present yourselves uh, servants to obey and don't present yourselves uh, servants to unrighteousness. He recognizes that just because you're married doesn't mean you might not go back to trying to live your single life. So uh, he is saying but you're united to Christ and that ought to determine how you live your life. Got it? So, another illustration is, suppose you were a prisoner, and you had to do what the warden said. That means you went to bed when he said, you got up when he said, you ate breakfast when he said, you ate lunch when he said, you ate dinner when he said, and one day you got freed. Do you have to obey the warden anymore? Could you stay up past bedtime? Could you sleep in? Could you eat breakfast anytime you wished? Could you skip breakfast? Could you eat lunch at any time you wished? Of course. But you may have so developed a habit that you have to think about this and reckon, I'm not in jail. I don't have to go to bed at the jail time, jail time, right? Uh, that's what's going on. But you have to reckon on that in order for that to come to pass. All right. I'm going to summarize everything I've said so far. I've got more. I'm not done. But I'm going to summarize everything I've said. The baptism of the Holy Spirit happens at... Oh, music to my ears. They woke up. At conversion. And it means you've been united to Christ. You're alive to him. That's all it means. Now, there's one more thing it means. Turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 12. 1 Corinthians chapter 12. And look at verse 13. For by one spirit were we all baptized into, stop, who were we baptized into? You're reading Romans 6. You said Christ, right? Now that's correct, but that's where? Romans. Romans 6. What does Paul say in 1 Corinthians 12? You were baptized into one body. Ooh, where did that come from? Whether you are Jew or Greek, 
slave or free, and have all been made to drink into one spirit. So here's what's going on. You are baptized into Christ and into the body of Christ, which in Ephesians chapter 1 is called the church. Very simply put, when you trust Christ, you are not only united to Christ, you are united to some, something called the body of Christ, which includes every other person on the planet who has trusted Christ. And you are united to all of them, like it or not. Whether you like them or not, we're all united to one another. Now, since I've used marriage to illustrate all this, let me pursue that illustration. As you soon learn, if you get married, you do not marry a person. Oh, you do, but there's more. You marry a family. And all the married people said, oh, yeah. You get a mother-in-law and a father-in-law and uncles and cousins and, you know, you get the whole family. Well, when you become a Christian, when you trust Jesus Christ for the gift of eternal life, you are united to him and his family. That is what the baptism of the Holy Spirit does. So, how are we doing? We got this? Now we can sum it all up. At conversion, the baptism of the Holy Spirit unites you to Jesus Christ and the body of Christ, which means you are united to him and to all other believers. Got it? All right. Now, I want to make a couple of observations before I quit. And one is this, the perception of who you are determines your behavior. Perception of yourself determines your personal behavior. So who do you think you are? That's a big issue. A lot of people have what psychologists call a low opinion of themselves and they act accordingly. Or if you think I can't do that, you won't even try. Or if you're cocky and think you can do that, you'll try even when people tell you you can. It's the point is your perception of yourself determines your behavior, right? Right. All right. What I hope I, to do today is change the perception of who you are. Who are you? You are a believer in Jesus Christ, which means you are united to him. Now, the point is, go behave accordingly. Go live your life reckoning on that reality. Go make decisions based on your relationship to Jesus Christ. 
That's the bottom line, one of them, of the baptism of the Holy Spirit. It's that simple. And that's the point I think Paul is making in Romans chapter 6. I have a friend who was driving, and he stopped at a light, and the person behind him didn't. Plowed into the back of him. And he sat there just steaming. He knew this meant a whole bunch of things. Number one, I'm going to be late for the appointment. I'm not going. Number two, this is going to be a hassle. The only people who win in an automobile accident are mechanic, are body shops. You know, they, they win, everybody else loses. Insurance companies lose money, you lose time, deductible, the person whose fault it is, they lose. Everybody loses except the body shop, they make money. So he got angry. But before he got out of the car, he sat there steaming and he thought, this is what he told me. I am a Christian. As a Christian, I can get out of this car and be kind. What a thought. So, turned off the motor, opened the door, got out of the car, and went back and was very gracious to the person who hit him. Now, in just very simple, practical terms, that's the doctrine of the Holy Spirit. I'm united to Christ, so I ought to behave and act and speak accordingly, period. There's a second application of this doctrine, and it's spelled out in Scripture in great detail. Did you turn in your Bible to 1 Corinthians chapter 12? Are you still there? Good. I want you to let's read the rest of the passage. Pick it up at verse 14. He just said we were baptized into one body. So what? Well, I'll tell you what. Verse 14. For the fact, um, for in fact, the body is not one member, but many. And the foot, uh, if the foot should say, because I'm not a hand, I'm not of the body. Is it therefore not of the body? And if an ear should say, because I'm not an eye, I am not of the body. Is it therefore not of the body? If the whole body were an eye, where would the hearing be? If the whole were hearing, where would be the smelling? This is so good. But... Now God has set the members, each one, in the body as he pleased. And if they were one member, where would the body be? But now, indeed, there are many members, yet one body. And the eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you. Nor can the hand say to the feet, I have no need of you. No, much rather, those members of the body which seem to be weaker are necessary. And those members of the body which we think to be less honorable, on those we bestow greater honor. And our unpresentable parts are great, with, have greater modesty. And our uh, presentable parts have no need. But God composed the body, having given greater honor 
to that part which lacks it. And there should be no schism in the body, and that the members should have the same care one for another. Did you see that? That's the bottom line. And if one member suffers, all the members suffer with it. And if one member is honored, all the members rejoice with it. If you want to know how the doctrine of the baptism of the Holy Spirit should affect your life, read verse 25. That is, you're members of the body of Christ, and that means you should care for every other member. Got it? And the body, he uses as an illustration, is the human body. And he goes into great detail to spell it out. Let me borrow his illustration, only use another part of your body. You got a toothache? You ever had a toothache? You know? And your hand says, I don't want to have anything to do with that tooth. I don't appreciate it aching, and I'm not going to do anything. And my feet say, I'm not going to have anything to do with that tooth. I don't approve of toothaches. I don't want to. Why should I be bothered if the tooth hurts? Not me. I'm not going to fool around with some toothache. But it's your members of the body. And so if the tooth hurts, the foot hurts, right? And the hand hurts, right? Well, not hurt, hurt. But what does that mean? It means that the brain says to the body, get up, go to the medicine cabinet, get the pain medicine, and now that's the feet getting involved with the toothache, and the hand put the medicine on the tooth and then use it to pick up the phone and call the dentist. (laughs) So if the body hurts, every member should care and get involved. Amen? is the baptism of the Holy Spirit. It puts you in the body of believers and we should care for one another. You know, the, what's in vogue today is growing bigger and bigger churches. I am not the least bit opposed to that. I have pastored a large church. That's not an issue. But large churches understand that you've got to have small groups. 95% of the churches in America have less than 100 people in them. Now, let me tell you the advantage of a small church. If the tooth hurts, everybody knows it. That's why we eat together every Sunday so that you can get to know each other and pray for each other and minister to one another. Now, the fallacy of what we're doing is all the feet get in one corner, all the hands get in one corner, and the tooth get in the other corner. So what I'd like to say is the healthy church is one where the feet and the hands are aware of the tooth. Now, those are called cliques, and they're not all bad. 
you get to know somebody and you want to play catch up with them. You're not going to eat with a different person every Sunday. I understand that. But maybe you should invite somebody that's eating alone over to join your little foot group. How's that? Is that a good idea? And if you're a hand, well, invite the tooth in. That's what this is about. Because we're members of one another. And that is a close, very close, intimate relationship. I had a fellow tell me this week, he was talking about some believers he's met, and he said, I'm closer to them than I are members of my own family. I've experienced that when I first became a Christian especially. That when you really plug in to what this is about, you learn to care about each other. Amen? Amen and amen. And as Paul explains in 1 Corinthians 12, every member is important. The tooth is important because it hurts. And we need the tooth so the rest of us can learn to care for tooth teeth that we don't particularly care about. <laughs> so we need to learn to care and minister to one another. A pastor told of uh, preaching on the subject, talking about that we were members of the body of Christ. And there was a doctor in his congregation. And after he preached, the doctor came up to him and said, um, there's a very necessary part of your body that you must have in order to preach. And it is not your voice. It's not your lungs. The pastor was intrigued and said, what might it be? And the doctor said, your big toe. That if you eliminated the big toe on each foot, you couldn't stand and be stable. So you have to have a big toe to preach. <laughs> Let me tell you something. In order for us to be the kind of church God intends for us to be, we need big toes and toothaches. Got it? Go live accordingly. Let's pray. Father, thank you for uniting us to your Son, and thank you for uniting us to one another. Now, Father, constantly remind us of this. And teach us to love one another, to care for one another, and not just ignore one another. Minister to us, I pray, in Jesus' name, amen.